thank you, Jerry and Jim, as we endeavor, all of us, to just set our hearts right. Indeed, that is our heart's cry, that God would take our life and hear our minds and hearts as we open up his word. So I invite you to do just that. Take your copy of God's word, turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus 22. A warm welcome to you if you're visiting with us. It's good to have you out at Westmount this morning. Pray you've been warmly received already. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you will see, look right in front of you. You'll see racks in front of you. You'll see God's Word there, a copy there you can follow along with. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 22nd chapter. That's where we are in our study, Exodus 22. Last week... We began a look at this portion of the law. Now, I recognize, and I think you do too, this is a larger portion of the law we're endeavoring to study, but it's all related. Begins in verse 16 of chapter 22, and it goes all the way through to chapter 23, verse 9. Long passage, but it it covers really one umbrella, and we might say it's horizontal justice, or you know the term today as social justice. Today, social justice commented on many subheadings uninspired that say that it's appropriate because that's what this content is all the way down to chapter 23, verse 9. And as we noted last time, when you think about social justice, that topic, that term is absolutely loaded today, is it not? That's a loaded term to even claim and talk about social justice. Remember, we began last week by asking, what do we mean by social justice? What do we mean? There's a lot of effort and cries today in the name of social justice. But again, we ask last week as we did and setting our hearts this week, we say, what does that mean? We hear so many words. Remember, you hear about equality. I know you've heard about equality. You hear about oppression. I know you've heard about oppression. I can go on and on listening words, and we talked about that last time, but words to what end? What are we talking about with those words? Words, here it is, defined by who? Who is giving definition to these words? And who and what standard is in view? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. Who and what standard is in view? And so as always, we gain clarity, understanding, and definition from God's word. Do we not, church? We go to God's word for definition. We go to the creator to define the terms. And so with social justice, as we've seen, and I pray we'll see again this week, we see clear definition from the Lord. So let's briefly recap, briefly recap by way of reintroduction to our passage this morning. First, we saw this justice for the maiden. Justice for the maiden. That was in verses 16 to 17. Remember the young maiden or the virgin, the young lady of marriageable age, that's what's in view here, was taken advantage of. That is a man seducing her and laying with her. But here's the thing in this case. She was not pledged or, and you know this term from last week, betrothed. That's like strong engagement. There's an arrangement there. There is a bond. It's like a strong engagement. She's not betrothed to him, but he seduces her and lays with her. And we commented on the modern approach to such a case. Today's social justice, how they deal with such cases. And you know them. Cases like this today 
spawn movements and moments, and they're like intense bursts that fizzle out. A true injustice is identified, and we need to note that it is. But often it becomes a moment, and often the young maiden, and here it is, and you have this picture in the social justice movement today, the young maiden is just still standing there when the dust settles. It was a thing, it was a moment, but then fizzles out. And often, again, the young maiden is just completely forgotten. And her cries, her distant cries are not heard. Not with our God. Remember, God's justice seeks to care for her long after the moment. Your God is in the business of long-term care. Long-term care. Either for the young maiden married rightly, with a husband to care for her all of her days, rightly, or back with her father. And a just price, a just bride price to go along with. God is concerned with protecting the young lady far after the transgression. Do you see the difference? He's in the business of caring for that young maiden. Either with a new family or a familiar one, remember the cries are heard. That's justice for the maiden. Next we saw justice for the wicked. Justice for the wicked. In verses 18 through 20, we saw three cases that demonstrate the most vile behavior. Likely you still remember those. They, No less shocking today, sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry. All utterly wicked. We can underscore that. All utterly wicked. And all receiving true justice here. All of them remember. Sorcery, bestiality, idolatry. All of them warranting the penalty of death. Yes, all of them coming under capital punishment. That's how serious it is. And that penalty reminds us of how lost and darkened our culture is. Our wicked age growing more and more comfortable with such unspeakable things. Bestiality in so many dark corners embraced. How wicked this generation can be. And it reminds us of how far, that's the dark world, but these things reminds us too, it's not just an out there thing, how much these have slipped into the church and the embrace of such things. Remember, we talked particularly about tolerating evil and our low-level embrace of superstition by way of fortunes, mediums, special clothes, or lucky charms. Failing to recognize idolatry and all of its insidious forms Bowing and clinging to our idols. No church, not us, not us. God's word says we abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 We abstain from some evil, every form of evil we abstain from. We don't tolerate it. Such evil practice under God's law brings death. That should be enough to sober us. It brings death. That's justice for the wicked. Then, so justice for the maiden, justice for the wicked, justice for the disadvantaged, found in verses 21 to 24. That would be the evident and clear socially disadvantaged. Remember we said that, and that's so important in the social justice movement today. The very clearly disadvantaged. The sojourner. Remember the one in the land, but not native to the land. The widow, without the provision and protection of a husband. And of course, the orphan without the provision and protection of parents. And we remind ourselves of this fact in God's word. Why? 
Why is this so important? Because social justice today has an awful lot to say with respect to the disadvantage. Is that not true? I think it's fair to say, and I want to say this respectfully, I have lost track of the disadvantaged groups in the social justice movement today. Because there's no reins on it. There's no definition to it. Everyone has stripes and disadvantages. And of course, we recognize, we talked about this last summer, we do. It's called sin. That's the big disadvantage that we all have, and we brought it on ourselves. It's true, beloved, that the categories of disadvantage in social justice today are endless. That is true, yet we must remind ourselves all the more in today's climate, and again, please hear this in God's word, there are clear, physically discernible circumstances of disadvantage. Very clear. Again, remember, you need no classes or lessons to understand why this person is disadvantaged. And again, when disadvantage is clear, God has something to say about their plight. Please grab this in this text. When disadvantage is clear, God has something to say about that. The sojourner is a fish out of water. We can all see it in your land. Don't oppress him. Love him. Love him. He's at a disadvantage. In fact, remember the command elsewhere in the law of Leviticus 19.33-34. You treat the stranger as if he was a native among you. Love him as yourself. Recall God's basis, his motivation to Israel in verse 21. For you were sojourners in Egypt. This is the motivation, Israel. You too were a fish out of water in Egypt. Do you remember? Now you too go and treat Others the way you would have wanted to be treated. Remember, you cried out for deliverance, to be free from Pharaoh's oppression. And Yahweh reminds again, I heard you. I freed you. Why? Because it was unjust. Evidently unjust. What that foreign ruler was doing to you, not native in that land. It was unjust and I moved. That's God, a God of justice. A God, listen, of wrong made right. Wrong made right. And recall while we're on that, that your God rights wrongs. He doesn't make new ones, remember? Our God is in the business of righting the wrong. He doesn't prop up and erect a new wrong. Remember, it would be causing another wrong to turn around and show partiality. And yet we're reminded of another branch of the social justice movement today. To then give preferential treatment to the sojourner because of a past generational wrong. No, no elevation of the sojourner, no national holiday or turning a blind eye to their wrong. God doesn't erect new ones with partiality. God's justice is concerned, listen, with wrong really and truly not happening again. Your God is not a God of lip service and sound bites and press conferences. Your God is a God of justice and says this should not happen again. That's God's concern. That's your God. And with that, let's not forget, God is about justice for the wrongdoer, especially when it comes to the truly disadvantaged, the sojourner, yes, and who else? Verse 22, the widow and the orphan, no husband, no parents. You just feel the nakedness of the widow and the orphan, don't you? They don't have the protection afforded to so many of us. And God says, you you mistreat such disadvantage? And God's justice declares this. Look at verse 23 as we are reminded. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, 
I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Is God in this again, I ask? He surely hears those cries. And that is what true justice looks like, defined by God, carried out by God, to the praise of God. Yes, God surely hears those cries, and he moves, and he will right the wrong. That time of reckoning is coming, of course, and we'll have more to say on that. But for now, we simply need to note how God defines justice. It's his law, right? Well, we move on now to the next circumstance where justice is defined by Yahweh. We continue in this passage. And it is the poor. It's the poor. Now, poverty is the epicenter, it seems, right, of all things social justice. Would you not agree? I mean, poverty is the ground zero of the social justice movement. And again, and I need to learn my lessons as we put together these, all ambitions to get to verse 9. We will not get to 23.9 today because providentially we have come to an arena that is front and center of this movement today. And, and, And beloved, I pray that you grab this. We need to understand this biblically. I pray you're with me in this. We want to understand poverty from God's point of view. Social justice has so much to say, so much is done, so much is spent in this arena, so it behooves us to understand this rightly. Poverty is the epicenter of all things social justice today. As such, we need to spend some time and attention here, so we will do so. Look at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Father in heaven, Lord, take this text, we pray, and inform us rightly. Please, Let me get out of the way of this text so that we can all hear from you. Let us receive it, let us understand it, and let us live it to your glory, we pray. In God's name, amen. We continue now with a closer look next, justice for the poor. Look again at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So here the the law outlines a case... Here it is, of a poor man needing money. That's the case before us, a poor man needing money. Now that is not an unfamiliar case, right? It's not. Someone who is poor is in need of money, by definition. Now we must note by way of balance that some modern justice cries can help us here. And we need to say that by way of balance. I mean, one of the awful ditches that we can fall into today, especially in the West is to go on living our lives as if there were none around us who were poor. And you know what I mean by that. That's an awful ditch to fall into. To want to continue on in our comfortable lives and pretend that there's no poor around us. Well, the reality of poor so often can be such an inconvenience to common society. For us, maybe. And it's so visible today. That's one of the things, the area we live in here, many of us in Peterborough, our community, of course, is now filled with poor. Right? We've been here seven years, my family, and it's stunning to me how much poor have increased in the land. 
Well, it seems like you see one that is destitute on many corners. Many curbs house them. Some of us at, uh, you know, our, seems like cousin or sister Churchill City, we had a group that met recently to talk about this very issue. Group in Hill City, group in Westmount. Some leaders, some of those involved with shelters, some law enforcement officers, we met together to talk about this crisis. We are the church. What do we do about this? So we met, and that's very actively going on, so that you know this is not just words. But we met, and we all agreed, and it was great to hear from the different experiences. One has done shelters, one who's literally fighting crime, to say there are many poor around us. This is a crisis. There are many poor And social justice, listen to me, is right to look to them and say they're there. So we're thankful for that. However, where social justice can take a wrong turn is in approach, focus, and effort. Right problem identified, wrong solution applied. You see that? Right problem applied. Yes, we all agree that's the problem. Very wrong solution applied. Now let's take a closer look here and consider what God has to say of the poor. First, Who are the poor, at least in this context that God is speaking of? Or does poor have definition? To whom exactly is God's word pointing us to here? So I pray we see this. Look at verse 25 again. If you lend money to any with you who is poor. Is that what it says? It says what? If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor. Do you see that? Any of my people. So that tells us that God here is not, at least in this context, talking about all poor everywhere. But the poor among who? His people. Us. Wow. Well, you might say, okay, well, that's fair. This is one context. Is that just one place? We need to pause for a moment in light of that, in light of social justice, and say, okay, is this it? Jason, if you come across the one verse that speaks about my people, my brothers, that's a fair question. You will say, what about those other verses and passages about the poor? Well, let's look at them. Let's start where we are in the law. Turn to Leviticus 25. We remain in the law. We remain, what did we learn this morning? In immediate context, right? We're not going to veer too far yet. We're in the law. Let's stay in the law. Leviticus 25, 35 to 38. It says this, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. There's lots of echoes to our passage, isn't there? Even the reminder of what you were in Egypt. But no one in particular. Verse 35, if anyone becomes poor, no. If your brother becomes poor. By the way, brother mentioned again in verse 36. Let's look at another one. Deuteronomy 15. We remain in the law still. Deuteronomy 15, Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 15, now let's go to, this would be for sure, many of you know this, this is the champion verse of the social justice movement, Deuteronomy 15, verse 10. So let's just read that. Let's just read that. You shall give to him freely, this is the poor, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. That is a tremendous verse, is it not? And many in social justice say, well, that's it. 
Take up arms, take up efforts, and let's go to the poor. That's a wonderful intent in some cases. This verse, again, needs to be read in context. Let's go back to verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Again, who is in view, verse 7, one of your brothers. Verse 9, your poor brother. And among, verse 11, brothers. There will never cease to be poor in the land amongst us. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. 23. Verse 19 and 20. This one is interesting, and I want you to keep this in mind as you read it. It actually seems to, no market, it does distinguish between people that would be in need of money. It distinguishes between two. Look very carefully, 23, 19 to 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. The Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering or take possession of it. Very helpful as many would cry that everybody's a brother. Right? And you'll hear that, and that would certainly be the protest. But certainly here we see... In context, same law. In context, no, that's not true. Not everyone is a brother under God in this case. So same language again in Exodus is what we're seeing here. Thus, as seen, the brother in need is what is in view with the law. Do you see this all throughout the law? Brother in need, view with the law. Note, what the law also doesn't say then is to neglect and deny other poor. I want us to make sure we see this. It doesn't say then... Just focus on your brothers. Make sure you're in that holy huddle. Seal it tight and then don't worry about what's going on out there. It does not say that. We're going to come back to that later. We're going to come back to the many others that are poor, that are not of God's people. However, for now, we need to make one final consideration this time in the New Testament because you're thinking, okay, well, what about the New Testament? What about Jesus? Well, let's go to Jesus. And beeline again, there's many passages I could go to in the New, but we're going to go to the one that is trophied by the social justice movement, Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Just by way of time, again, many more places we could go, but we're going to go right here. Well-known parable. By the way, in context, this is final judgment. This is God rendering final judgment to a group. This is serious, and I'm sure you've heard this parable of Christ quoted to stir us up to help the poor. You've heard this. I know you have. Well, the question again is, who is in view of these these poor? Let's read it. Look in verse 31. Look with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so this is final judgment, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And then listen to this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The least of my brothers. Look again in verse 40. Who is this in view? My brothers. Now we really want to go a little deeper here and grab a hold of this picture of the body of Christ. Jesus is using what analogy through this whole thing? Himself. And it stands to reason. This all makes sense. He's saying, you did it to me. If you did it to the body of Christ, you did it to me. The body of Christ is who? All people of all time in every place? No, the body of Christ is who? God's people. That's the point of the analogy. When you did it to me, when you did it to my body, the redeemed, the church. And let's understand this properly here. The evidence at final judgment won't be how you treated all people. But it will be how you treated who? God's people. And you say, well, I've never heard anything like that. It doesn't make sense. Well, let's stop and think for a moment. Those thrust into eternal punishment will have failed first and foremost where? In the household of God. And that stands to reason, doesn't it? If they failed here, you know by extension what that's going to look like out there. Again, this does not mean we ignore other people. And we're coming back to that. I know you're waiting for it. Just that our first focus as God-fearers is who? The household of God. The household of faith. And by the way, this is throughout the New Testament. This is exactly what's taught. Remember Galatians? Our study in Galatians? You remember that study in the New Testament? Galatians 6.10. Please note this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what you see time and time again. Beloved, this may cause us to bristle because social justice narratives have pumped us with the opposite. They've said, do that at the expense of this, right? If you do nothing else, serve them. Now we're going to come back to them. And the house is in disorder. You do anything else, do that. You hear it all the time. The poor out there, the needs there, and again, we're going to come back to that. But this is teaching priority, not neglect. Do you see that? This is teaching priority, not neglect. And let me, I pray, help you with one illustration. What would you say of the father that lived on a street that took really good care of the neighborhood kids, but not his own kids? Would that be a good father? Would you want that kind of father? Well, you don't have that kind of father. Your father says, my household, I care for them. And not to the abandonment of others. I have a plan and purpose, right? To bring the gospel to them. And yes, through you, my children. But first and foremost, this is about priority in the household of faith. I hope that makes sense. How often, though, 
is that precisely what the social justice movement espouses today? Take care of the neighborhood kids. But what about my own kids? Take care of the neighborhood kids. But what about my Take care of the neighborhood kids. Right? And with all due respect, there's some well-intended folks there, but this is what's happening. And decades later, with so much effort being put into social justice, people want to know why houses are crumbling. Because there's been neglect of the needs in the household of faith. And this movement doesn't just espouse this. Listen to me. It practices it and it enforces it. You're not a good Christian if. Now listen, I know you're thinking, why press this? Because listen, we are breathing this oxygen. How deep have we been influenced by this ideology, this harmful social justice narrative? Let me give you one very contemporary example. To the point that we have focused more on the needs and the voices beyond these walls. Let me show you this. To the point that we are being told that those needs matter more than the ones in here. That those needs matter more for those that are the brothers in the body of Christ. And you have heard this. I know you've heard it. Churches need to comply and close because what are they going to say? You've heard that. What about our witness to them? We need to close our doors and comply with Caesar because of them. You've heard that. And it sounds good, doesn't it? It's sprinkled with Bible verses that are not understood. What about their needs? And God says, what about these needs? We'll leave the simple obedience to Christ and lordship to Christ aside for a moment, but consider in that feel-good statement of closing church equaling a good witness that such a sentiment esteems the needs of the world over the needs of the church. What of the household of God? What of the needs of the body of Christ? We as pastors and elders see sheep failing, falling, struggling for air. What of the poor brothers, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 23, Matthew 25, Galatians 6. Modern social justice perversions have infected us so much that so many believe this stuff. So many buy into this and at the expense of the needs of the body, it is so crippling. And you'll forgive me for a bit of emotion this morning to see sheep suffer so much. To see some of you wash ashore because you're not being fed. And you're not getting the daily nourishment you need from God's word. I ask you if that's right under God. So many buy in and at the expense of the needs of the body, so many seek to serve the world. And you know what's sad, beloved? When you give up service to Christ for service to the world, you gain neither. When you give up service to Christ to serve the world, you gain neither. I don't know of one person, I don't know of one person or one account of someone trying out church because they complied with Caesar. I don't know one, but I see you. And so it is, when we abandon God's word, our definitions are flipped on end. In God's law here, the poor, God says, are my people. Now, let's tackle this. What of the poor beyond these walls, the other poor? God does not neglect them. Turn to Leviticus 19. God does not neglect the poor. Let's not buy into that false narrative as well. What of the other poor? And I pray your heart breaks for the other poor. They're not neglected. 
Look at, look at your God in this law. Look at your God. This is just fantastic why I love the study of God's word. Leviticus 19, 9-10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for who? The poor and the sojourner. Why? I am the Lord your God. Is God in the business of all poor? Absolutely. Absolutely. God does not neglect all poor. In fact, this is the principle of consideration. And you know what's stunning under Yahweh when so many give no consideration to the poor? Who's on it? God is. God says, give consideration. Don't neglect the poor. Consider them. And notice, by the way, I need to say this, that the consideration is not money. Not that money is bad. But he gives them food. Things they need to get to tomorrow. Practical things. That's what they need. Leave the edges for them. And again, it is responsible along with after all the family needs being cared for. You don't ignore. You build it into your practice to consider the poor. We should be considering that every day. Secondly, we don't neglect them. God doesn't neglect them. And here is the thing. Food or even money is not the primary need we should have in view. Right? Turn back to Matthew. I know you're turning a bit. Hopefully it's helpful. Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. So helpful as Jesus. Remember, this is a section where Jesus is really expanding our vision of the law and understanding of it. Matthew 5. Let me actually start in 13. This is basically still introductory comments on the law. He says this. You, these would be his people, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? I can only help, by the way, of modern movements that would have lost their saltiness. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then look at this, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, disciples, in the same way, my people, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. And then what will they do? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is a very clear picture of a spiritual movement. The good work may be a physical provision, but what has it done? They've looked at you so radically, right? Serving when would say, why are you here? What are you doing? Look at me. And you serve them and you love them, but always to the glory of God the Father. Do the works, the food considerations, the mercy. Do they point them to God? That's the question, beloved. Does the mercy ministry point them to God, or is it just a hot meal and a full bag of clothes? Just so you can feel better, right? Is, is that all that it is? No, it must point them to God. And this is so very important because those classic mercy items, food and clothes, only address what? Temporal sustainability. Right? Not eternal security. They don't address the, the need. They have needs that doesn't address the need. Those needs are not the need that every poor person has, that we all have. The need to be reconciled back to our Creator before we die. That's the only need we have in this life. That before we take our final breath, we have, through Christ, been reconciled to the One that made us. That's our need. That's it. Because if we aren't, then we have a problem. And it's far greater than not having food or clothes. 
It's called separation from God forever by way of eternal punishment in hell. And I would say that's a very important need. So, beloved, we do consider all the poor, but always in light of their greatest need. Turn back now to Exodus. Turn back now to Exodus. With that fuller, I hope, biblical understanding of the poor, we see now the framework for the poor in God's law here. My people that are poor. Next, we notice that meeting needs here is not like how the world meets them. Don't miss this, beloved. Here, you think of ads for lending institutions. I just always get a kick out of they want to lend you money and tell you how they understand your need. I understand that you're in need and you want to do this thing and you need this, but we're going to charge you interest for that. We, we, we will lend you, but we're going to ask for more back. And there's always that catch, right? They lend to the needy with interest. So many proud of their low interest rates, which compared to payday loans, by the way, is something. I don't know if you're like me. The payday loan shops just drive you bananas, right? Those poor folks. But the reality is, low or high, it's interest. It is lending. And listen to it. It's lending. Interest is this. Think of injustice. Lending but taking back more. How just is that? That's the economy of the world. And listen, just so... So confusion. We need to function in some ways under that economy, right? We need to. Mortgages and such, but that's the way of Babylon. It's the way of the world, and in some senses, we must function under that. But collecting interest within the economy of God and his people is not that. Here, look at verse 25. You shall not, is this any clearer? You shall not exact interest from him. Remember, we read the same thing earlier in Leviticus 25, 36. Take no interest. Two places, same law. Now, an interest-free lend is one thing expressed in the Mosaic Law, but we, church, consider the law as expanded and as expressed by who? Jesus. Christ, as we were already in the Sermon on the Mount. We heard it already. In the New Covenant, this is a passage Jeremy read this morning, Jesus says, Luke 6.35, lend, and then he says this, expecting nothing in return. So forget interest, Jesus says. You, and you think about lend, give it. They have a need, meet it. We're not even talking about interest. We're not even talking about paying back. Give it to them. In other words, more than lend, the economy of Christ teaches we just give. We gift. We gift. We gift to a brother in need. To a brother. We continue to see Christ expands our vision of God's law. He shows us more. In fact, what Christ does is simply show us, remember, the one in the law, right? The one embodied in the law. He's showing his character. That is the law. Remember, Matthew 5.17, what did Jesus say? Christ, the fulfillment of the law. You're seeing Christ on display, the character of the triune God there. That's because his very character, yes, God himself is flowing out of the law. It's not, when you think about who God is, and you think about this economy, is not our God a God that gives undeserved gifts to those that are poor and needy? Does he exact interest? Does he ask, is there payback? No, the heart of our God is to lavish gifts on those that are poor and needy. Forget interest, forget payback. It's given. Ephesians 2. It's, it's a free gift. That's what makes it so amazing. There's no interest charged on your salvation. It's a free gift. This is the character of God to give to those in need the turn. Brace him, the brothers, his people. We see this reality again in the next few verses. And this would be the character of God in the law. Look at verse 26. 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I am compassionate. You do not take interest from your brother, but you may take a pledge. That's very different. It's a pledge. The pledge here was a cloak. It was an outer garment, a very functional outer garment. In lending deals, it was given by the lendee to the lender as a pledge that they would return the money. Jim was talking about symbols this morning. This is a helpful introduction to this. A pledge was like a symbol that they would, as brothers, as friends, repay that. It's not interest. Now, the pledge was less like collateral. We have to get that image out of our mind and more like a symbolic gesture between brothers. And this gesture, by the way, was well attested in the ancient Near East. You see it in Deuteronomy 24. You see it in Amos 2. Even as far back as Job, who very likely was a contemporary with the patriarchs, Job 22.6. Strictly speaking, under the terms of the law in the ancient Near East, the lender was permitted to keep the pledge until the money was repaid. And for many Israelites, the symbol was not a problem, as they had many cloaks, right? It's a functional piece. And like many do even today, we have many pieces of functional clothes, the, especially the middle and the upper class in Israel. We have wardrobes filled with what? Cloaks. And we have many, and we don't concern ourselves with those things. We're blessed to not. Again, no different today, though. That's the middle and upper class, but what of the poor? The poor. For the poor, the cloak, note this, was more than a symbol, wasn't it? More than a symbol. Imagine the poor surrendering that one functional garment that they had. More than a symbol, this cloak would have not only kept them cloaked, but warm at night. And even more often, right, they would take a piece of that cloak and use it as a pillow. That was how functional it was for them. And in light of that day, God embeds right there in the law. So in light of the ancient Near East, God embeds right there in the law. Look at verse 27 at the end. Compassion. God sheds light on the reality of the poor, says, and don't you love this by God? God, look at it, it's right in the law. That's his, that's his only covering. You see the heart of God here? Says, that's his only covering. You feel the heart of God here. And then our Lord asks rhetorically, don't miss this, middle of verse 27, in what else shall he sleep? Is God concerned with the needs of this poor one? Say, well, what is he going to sleep? And contrast that Listen, whether it's other religions, other deities, other professed care, do they talk this way? We're in a dog-eat-dog world, are we not? You owe it to me. Give it to me. As you see time and time again here, don't miss God revealed in this law. And listen, the world has no bucket for compassion and its justice. It may profess to, but it doesn't in practice. Ungodly lending has no compassion. The evidence is replete. Ungodly lending knows nothing of compassion. Ungodly lending says, you borrowed, you can't pay, I'll take your cloak and more. But that's not the way of Yahweh. God's concern, listen, is not justice without mercy. It's not the way God works. It's not justice without mercy. Yes, the poor should normally surrender that cloak for the duration of the loan. Yes, that would be how the world approaches a loan, but this is not the law of the world, is it? It's the law of who? God is the God of this law. And with this law, with this God, there is compassion. Verse 27. If he cries to me, I will hear. Why? For I am compassionate. Once again, the cries are heard. 
by the God of all justice. That is justice for the poor. Also, and let's not be fooled by the impotent justice offered by social justice today. Again, despite its name, it is absolutely incapable of delivering true social justice. I know I mentioned that last week. It bears repeating again. It's incapable of delivering true justice. That's because it seeks to deliver justice to the poor. Here it is, without understanding. Do you see that? Looking to broker justice and administer justice without an understanding of what true justice is. For the world, justice attempted without God is nothing more than good intentions. Mark it. Justice attempted and offered without God is nothing more than good intentions. For the church, justice attempted at the neglect of household needs is actually injustice, according to Yahweh. Yes, neither is able to deliver real justice. In fact, neither really truly loves. And that's the rub, isn't it? Social justice, oh, social justice is presented as very rich and very loving, isn't it? Very noble, very virtuous. But in the end, listen to me and listen to God as he's defined it this morning. It is bankrupt. It's bankrupt. I mentioned meeting with that group this past week, and one of them that's involved in many of these ministries said to us, you just cannot fathom nor compute the millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on the poor that goes nowhere. Doesn't it break your heart? Just to say we have a program. In fact, one of the gentlemen was explaining to me, he was saying how the metric is given, and it would break your heart at what constitutes as a help. It'd make you ill, actually. Church, love nor justice is empty spending with God. Can we grab that? Love nor justice is empty at all with God. And I pray that's your hope. It's costly. It's costly. How? And we need to belt this out. Because this is what love is. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And listen, heaven's peace and what? Perfect justice. Kissed a guilty world in love. That is met need, vast as the ocean. That is loving kindness as a flood. Listen, without Christ, we are all poor and in big trouble. He, the perfect son, is our cloak and our pledge, only him. And so apart from Christ, we are and have nothing. Hear me, apart from Christ, we are and have nothing, but in him we have everything. In Christ, we have everything. Father, we pray for these truths to go deep into our soul. Lord, I pray we, we see and hear and receive so clearly your word this morning. And Lord, we're reminded of how poor we are apart from your Son. And Lord, let us take that heart, that grace, that undeserved grace and mercy. Let us take it not just to the brothers, as you said, but to all the world with the most tangible need, the message of the most tangible need, salvation in Christ, offered sufficient, complete in the Son. God, let us proclaim that love here today, we pray. Amen.